Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the designfootball.com podcast. My name is Jay, I'm the resident blogger on designfootball.com. Today I'm joined by Sean Pankhurst, who is a freelance sportswear designer and is formerly of Nike and Canterbury. Hi Sean, welcome to the podcast. Hi Jay, how are you? Yeah, yeah, not so bad, and yourself? I'm good, thanks. Good. Okay, now to start off with, just tell us a little bit about how you got into sportswear design, what was it that was of interest or, or was it of interest at all when you were a kid, for example? Um, well, funnily enough, I uh, I wanted to be a, a football kit designer since I was about seven. <laughs> um, my dad used to be, a, well, was a, a sort of ex-pro footballer and uh, sort of got me into football. Um, but most of the time I was more interested in the kits than... Uh, than actually what I was supposed to be doing on the football pitch. Okay. So what did that take any particular form when you were a kid? Was this something you'd be drawing drawing pictures of kits um, in your spare time, that kind of thing? So it all started with, um, you know, I, I, was a, I was a Chelsea fan at the time. And, um, yeah, basically... Uh, it was about the about the time when uh, sort of replica replica kits became really quite big. Um, I obviously, as any young lad, want uh, wanted a football kit myself, um, and I couldn't afford one, so uh, I sort of uh, took it upon myself to start drawing them um, as a kind of fantasy thing. Um, at the time, as well, there was a lot of these sort of mini kits around, um, and uh, I. I again started to to copy those and that led on to actually designing kits myself um the first um kits that i ever did were for the 94 world cup mm-hmm. and that was for um i sort of mocked up a catalog myself um yeah and basically uh designed a kit for every team that was in the 1994 world cup in the usa <laughs> excellent so have you still got those i have I have. Um, believe it or not, I, I didn't realise, but my mum, um, a few years ago, uh, took me up into the attic and showed me all these uh, these catalogues that I'd done. Um, and it wasn't just for USI 94, it was for pretty much every major tournament and every Premier League season that was from 1994 till about, well, I don't know, 20... no... 2000 or something like that it was quite a few years and quite a few catalogues so so was this was this like a, a yearly tradition then before the new kits came out you'd, you'd design a whole load or was would this be after the kits had come out for that season or would you preempt them i'd preempt them um i'd mm-hmm. spend basically the six weeks of my summer holiday going through uh designing football kits i was brought up on a farm 
Um, so there wasn't a lot to do. It wasn't as if I could uh, go out and call for my mates every every evening. Um, so most of the time, I would either uh, be outside uh, in the field with my with a, a five-a-side goal that my my dad had built me, um, or I'd be indoors drawing football kits. So uh, football kits were my life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I had similar things when I was a kid. Not to that extent. That's that's true dedication. But I remember in my early twenties or mid twenties, I think I had folders of these things, and I decided I I was too old to keep them. And I remember throwing them all in a bin. And if I could go back in time and just fish them out now, I would. All gone. But that, I'm I'm happy that you've managed to keep hold of those. Or to your surprise, they still exist. Put it that way. Well, this is it. I've got my mum to thank for that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this does bode pretty well for the future but how as you obviously getting older you're getting towards leaving school and so on what your decisions are starting to be made did did this was this a factor in your decision making at that point of what you're going to do for the rest of your your life well to be perfectly honest I was relentless I was absolutely relentless um at that at that point this is why I can pinpoint the age that I actually um wanted decided that I wanted to do it because um, I, you know, when I first spoke to my careers advisor when I was sort of 13, um, she asked me sort of, you know, kind of what area I wanted to go in, whether that was, you know, art, whether that was business or whatever it may be. And I said I wanted to be a football kit designer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what I was going to do. <laughs> um, and uh, obviously she laughed at me and said, well, the best way to uh, to to set foot on that road is to uh, to go to art college um i was to do a btech national diploma uh and my first interview at the college to actually get in to do that course rather than present to them all my you know course study work you know that's what i should have presented but uh, unfortunately uh, i went to the interview with all these catalogues of football kits that i'd done <laughs> since i was seven um, and I later heard that the reason why I got in on that course was not, you know, um, the work that I should have done, but it was purely because they could see the passion that was in him uh-huh. and the fire that was in my eyes. That's fantastic. That, that that's you wouldn't expect that. I mean, so was this kind of a a hundred percent record? Then this was the only place you'd applied to, and you got in on that basis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah that's that's perfect then <laughs> that sounds great that's oh, I you would expect that that maybe there would be there would be people who play it by the book and say well no this isn't of the level we required this isn't formatted in the way we require so you you we can't offer you a place but then someone would see that passion and say okay I'm willing to take a chance on you but for the only people you you went to to actually see it it's uh I, I suppose it was meant to be so where did you go from there then was the was this entire course, were you able to draw pictures of kits this entire course? I'm guessing not. Well, <laughs> the, the, same te- the same tutor that let me into the course um, then spent the next two years trying to beat out of me um, football kit design and how I approached um, art and design. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was quite a feat, but I think on the last... Uh, the last few months that I was there, when I was due to to, to do my final collection, um, he managed to achieve it and and got me looking at um, 
fashion from a slightly different point of view than uh, than bold prints and colours, which was hmm. generally how I approached design, even at that point. Um, you know, obviously, I was a kid who grew up in the nineties. Yeah. It was all about geometric prints, bold, bright colours, and all that kind of thing that came from football kit design. And essentially, it therefore meant that everything I did within design from that point onwards would always be from that point of view. Um, but as I say, um, thankfully, he managed to get that out of me towards the end. Yeah, so th- he, he managed to get it out of you, but it is something you returned to. So what was the next stage then after that? So the next stage was to go on to um, uh, HND at um, university. Um, I spent two years doing that and then moved mm-hmm. it on to the final year of a degree. Um, but again, I, I sort of took that sort of... Um, the stuff that I'd learned at, at college and, you know, I've tried to kind of um, expand my focus out a little bit. And I started to becoming more, become more interested in fashion and more interested in, in lifestyle. Um, I was never really, I never wanted to be a couture designer or anything like that. But I started to wonder whether I could actually, um, you know, cut it as a, as a designer of, of, you know, general fashion or clothing or something like that. Um, rather than being so um, tunnel visioned on uh, actually becoming a football kid designer, because you know, as I'm sure most of your listeners will agree, that's that's the, the likelihood of actually achieving that goal is pretty low. Yeah. Um, so so the, when you were doing this H and D course, what does it actually in, entail? Is is the, I take it there's a mix of theory and practical work. What what were the projects that you were involved in? Um, so, yeah, I mean, this was a long time ago. <laughs> um, a lot of it would be about, um, th- there would be different different approaches, again, from, from a designer's point of view. So, in the same way as you learn things at school, like maths and English and stuff like that, there's there's so many different facets to, to design and, and, a, and apparel design. As I say, um, that can be anything from designing for the high street where you've got to bear in mind you know uh, consumers um, you know the, the cost of things and being able to make a profit from garments mm. um, as well as you know following trends and stuff like that to couture design which is much more about um, art form and actually being able to create um, a focus on the brand from from, uh, from well from a, um, from a People who've got yeah, people basically have got a lot of money, um, and being able to promote yeah. that brand out to, to more to, to smaller, what they call diffusion brands. So, yeah. in, in other words, the the only way that Gucci and um, and Prada and these sorts of brands are able to exist is because you know they have these um, you know they have perfumes and they have lots of mm. uh, ranges which are actually in the shops, but that's driven by what is on the catwalk. Okay, so diffusion brands, are we talking, as an example, like Giorgio Armani and then Emporio Armani or Armani Jeans? Is that the same that's, relationship? That's exactly it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so a lot of the couture items, I, t- I take it, would be... Well, that's catwalk-based, I suppose, but then it's maybe given to celebrities, so there's no real profit in that, but it's it, it elevates the, the standard of the brand. Would that be right? Yeah, it's all about brand promotion. But you, you know, as you go through you know, um, university and that sort of thing, you are taught, like I said, the different facets of, of, of what it is to be a designer. So everything from, 
um, you know, designing a garment and following trends, actually bringing together a collection um, to creating uh, tech packs, which we send to factories. I'll probably come on to that a bit later, but um, and then actually making the garment yourself in you know in a sewing room. Um, with technicians and so on and so forth. So there's there's a huge amount of that actually goes into, um, you know, learning the 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 um, the craft of design. Yeah. So I know you're probably going to have to rack your brains now, but do you remember there being any specific sportswear projects while you were doing the HND course? And then, uh, so you did go on to complete a full degree in the end. Was it a full three three year course? Was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, nothing that was specifically sportswear focused, no. Right. Okay. Um, but I chose to do. Um, I mean, you can do sportswear degree courses, but because um, you know, uh, I'd had countless conversations with my tutor, who was kind of like, "Look, try not to, um, you know, uh, pigeonhole yourself too much at this point in your career. Try and." You know, give yourself as broad a spectrum as you can because you never know. You may not always want to be a football kit designer. Yeah. Um, and at you know at that point, I was kind of like, well, at the very at the very least, I want to be a designer. So if I don't make it within sportswear, I'd like mm. to do something maybe high street based or whatever that may be. So mm. I chose a university that that, spe- that didn't necessarily specialise in anything, um, but was obviously you know quite uh, focused on, on on fashion. Yeah. So. Do you did you feel at the time that the interest in sportswear was actually going a little bit, or or did, was it still burning for you then at that point? It was always still burning. I mean, I can't deny that. I mean, mm. um, but it, it's like I said, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I had the best possible chance of getting a job, um, and I knew even then that you know, uh, being able to find a job at the end of it of this education was going to be you know probably the, the biggest challenge so yeah. as i say i wanted to give my bed myself the best possible opportunity to to do that i remember having uh, a conversation with my granddad i think when i was about 10 who uh you know i'd been doing these these football kits you know every summer for two or three years and he said mm-hmm. to me he finally said you know one day what are you doing and I said, um, I showed him. And I said, this is what I'm going to do for a job one day. Mm-hmm. And he laughed and he said, you don't want to do something like that. There's no money in it. You should get a proper job. So from that point onwards, the more people that said it, the more people that said, you, you know, you're not going to be able to do that, the more it drove me to want to, to get there. Yeah. Um, but as I say, in order to, to get there, I wanted to give myself the best possible chance. So... That was obviously making sure that I could diversify as much as possible before I even um, started out on a career. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay. So what was your... What were you after you completed your courses? What was the your first foray into into design? So rather than education necessarily, just uh, did, was there work experience, or did you did you find a job immediately? I found a job immediately, um, but that was just again through sheer determination. Um, it was a job that was advertised at the university. Um, uh, and I didn't, well, I can't remember whether I realised at the time or not, but it was, to me, it was a job. And all I cared about was getting out and working. Mm. Um, and my, it, as it, so as it turns out, my first job was designing life jackets. Hmm. Um, okay. But the job that I went for was actually um, was a, as an admin for, uh, for, a lot, uh, you know, for a company that sold life jackets. Um, of course, I went for the job. Um, and I took my portfolio down there. This time it wasn't full of football kits, which probably helped. Um, <laughs> and uh, I got, I, uh, they created a position for me because they were, um, again, that impressed with my um, burning desire and, and, and passion for what I was doing, that they actually made a job for me. Ah. Okay, so was this an admin role within... A design department of the company, or was it just general admin at the company? No, it was a it was an admin role within the, in the design department. Okay, but as I say, uh, it wasn't actually designing anything or, or or whatever. Okay, and it was a great job. Um, I really enjoyed it, um, and I was kind of in charge of what I was doing. I was I was actually designing um, uh, extreme. Um, life jackets for people who sort of throw themselves off of 100 foot waterfalls or crash helmets on you know that kind of thing yeah um it was for a brand called yak um okay. who are owned by uh another company called crusader um so check them out they're 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 still around and um yeah it was a, it was a really good job he, you know there was a lot of um technical uh content to this and mm. that's what's normally you know that's what's generally motivated me as a designer I think fashion for me is a little bit too, and I'm sure fashion designers won't thank me for saying this, but I find it too easy. Um, I think it's easy to design a shirt with some, frill, you know, with some frills on it and some buttons. But when you're actually, you know, the the thing that really makes me tick about design is actually um, when you design something specifically for a purpose. Um, and again, this was my first real um, drive towards. Um, actually making something which I felt really served what it was meant for um, and the, the sort of challenges that I was facing were you know making it as, as strong and robust as possible um, because obviously this this was going to take in you know take a lot of battering from the elements yeah. but also you know looking at um, crafting the jacket so that it was um, it would sit as close to the body as possible so one of the things that I was doing was just um, shaving sort of little parts of the f uh, a foam off the actual buoyancy aid, um, which is, you know, like the flotation device, yeah. whatever, that you're capable of float, 
um, just shaving edges off of that to make it again fit closer to the body um, and hug the person um, so that they wouldn't have you know so we're taking off little uh, bits of anything that would kind of get in their way when they were paddling um, again using neoprene on the top part instead of straps and stuff like that just to you know that taking those little just obsessing the details so that it makes it that little bit better each time yeah i from from what you say there that sounds like obviously there'd be huge amounts of information that you would have learned over a three-year period but going into something so specific as that there must have been so much research involved so much learning of completely new materials too would that be the case yeah absolutely um, but you kind of learn on the job and there's people yeah. there to help you as well you know I wasn't starting from scratch I was no, no, um, no. I was you know <clears throat> I was making things you know I was refining things making them better um, but it's still you know even to this day still it's still something that I'm, I'm quite proud of um, you know just yeah what, what was it, the, the, the sort of like you said the, the great deal of research that was involved and actually learning as you go um, was a really good good learning curve yeah I for something like that I might be wrong but I would assume for something like that it is kind of life life and death situations isn't it so that you're talking about British standards of, of or European standards I suppose for safety as well so it sounds to be like a, a baptism of fire of, of <laughs> the I'm not creating something just to look pretty although that's an element of it as well but it's it's got a suit its purpose perfectly otherwise people could be in serious trouble is that would that be right well this is it i mean this is this is why i like sportswear so much because you know there are two facets to it one is to as i say design to purpose um but the second thing is to make things look cool mm. um as far as you know keeping people alive is concerned yeah that was that was a major factor mm. but um specifically testing it to that to those means you know you, you would have a you'd have a device that was, would allow you to do that um, mm. and it was quite cool actually it was you, you have to actually measure the resistance of the foam against the water so each buoyancy will have will have a, a different level of resistance depending on what you're selling it to how you measure that is quite simple you just cut a piece of foam you put it into a cage and then you drop it out down into water and there's you know literally um uh you know it's like a scale mm. on the you know attached to it that tells you how much pressure is is being resisted so you'd kind of you know um, at the time my challenge was obviously to take as much of that foam out of the existing buoyancy aid as possible to make it um as streamlined as possible without losing that resistance yeah so um yeah that was quite a challenge mm. Yeah, it sounds it sounds particularly mathematical as well, which is is not necessarily something you'd that would jump out at you when when someone says they're a designer, for example. But your that your role there was like hands on everything, really. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it was a small yeah. company though, so I mean, it, you know, it depends on what sort of company you work for. I've worked for big companies, small companies, mm. um, and often you'll have a, you know in a big company you'll have you'll have everything from a, a designer to a developer to a sourcing expert to a colorist even um yeah but in a company like that that's that's pretty small in comparison to say nike or canterbury um yeah you you'd have somebody doing everything which is great you know as a designer you you, you know it's nice to be hands-on with the product mm. okay so was nike your next move no debenhams that was my next oh. move 
<laughs> because okay. again, going back to the story, um, I was desperate not to pigeonhole myself. I was listening to advice from people, um, and although my first job was was within sportswear, I think that was more luck than anything else. Um, and I wanted to try and get myself out of of again, make you know pigeonhole my pigeonholing myself as a design uh, as a sportswear designer too early on in my career, because a lot again as luck would have it. Um, when I left um, Crusaver, I got offered a job at Debenhams and at Puma, hmm. um, and I chose okay. to take the job at Debenhams because I wanted, you know, again, as to get away from from the sportswear thing because I knew that at some point in my career I could go back to it, um, and I think deep down I always knew that there would be a, you know, eventually I would. Yeah. Um, again, as I say, at the at the at the time, you know, I thought I'll. Oh, Fashion's easy, sportswear's a lot harder. But I wanted to see if that was the case. So you know, I didn't want to kind of do people down if that if they were if if it wasn't as easy as that. Um, and so I, I, you know, I went to Debenhams. Um, um, I, I, you know, and again, I was working on all sorts of different brands in house there. So that was everything from Jasper Comrade to John Russia to um, yeah, Maine, New England, all yeah. sorts of different you know, kind of lifestyle brands, as well as designer brands. Um, and I knew that they would have the scope for me to be able to do that and to be able to sort of see what, you know, whether it was worth me moving in that direction. Okay. And as it, in the end, I ended up spending four years there. And so, so what did you, did you have that question answered or, or was it as easy as you thought it would be or not? So I think the first two to three years, I mean, I was at the bottom anyway so I was doing um, although I was a designer at a small company I ended up being a um, I think I was design assistant when I first went to Debenhams um, you know uh, doing you know all the different brands just you know and I didn't do a, lot, a great deal of designing if I'm honest mm. um, but I worked my way through there um, and I ended up um, again as luck would have it um, starting a, uh, a surf brand for them Mm, called okay. Manta Ray. Right. Um, I was part of the team that started that, um, where we sort of identified a gap in the market for um, the sort of fat face slash white stuff kind of look. Yeah. At the time, there wasn't very much of that around. And we wanted to cut, you know, we, we noticed a lot of these sort of pockets of, of uh, you know, uh, of a cult following for these small... Uh, you know, again, Fat Face was quite a small brand at the time. They didn't have that many stores, um, and we knew that something like that would work really well on the high street. So, we took that that um, that look, um, and as I say, brought it to the high street and uh, launched a, a kind of a surf, surf lifestyle brand. Okay, and it was actually that that got me noticed at Nike. Okay, so did did any of the poor? I, I mean, my focus is going to be on that, but the did any of the performance technology creep into that or was it still entirely lifestyle based but with a, a sort of surfer theme to it? It was entirely lifestyle based with surf with a surf theme to it. Ah, okay. Was did but you I, find um, that with your background, did you find that frustrating? I wouldn't say frustrating. As I say, I was still kind of in in that zone where I wanted to to, to branch out, see what was what what I could do, what my limitations were. Um and as I say, that's why I kind of went down that route. Okay. So, but then Nike came calling. 
yeah. Um, it was funny. I was I was at a, a trade show in in Barcelona, working on Manta Ray. Um, yeah, and I was I, I was just approached um, by a uh, a recruiter at Nike before I went. Just they said, you know, are, are you going to be at uh, Bread and Butter in Barcelona? And I said yes. Um, and I, uh, funnily enough, I'd actually had an interview with them a few years previous, um, and it didn't go very well. Okay. <laughs> um, but it was my wife that convinced me to talk to them, um, and uh, yeah, they, they sort of said um, they had this. They, you know, they actually had a few openings there, and would I be interested in coming over for an interview? Um, again, I said no. Um, and again, my wife said, well, maybe you should listen to what they've got to say, because <laughs> I'm sure some of my Nike colleagues are going to listen to this thinking, what? But yeah, that's that's generally how it went down. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I went and uh, I suppose the, the rest is history, really. So where was this? This is the Netherlands, was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you got in there. So what was your initial role at Nike? What, what year are we talking now as well? Uh, 2007. Okay. Right. Um, my initial role at Nike was, you know, all the time I was at Nike, I was a designer. Um, I wasn't a senior or anything like that. I was just okay. uh, just a regular designer. But when I first started at Nike, uh, there was three of us who were designing everything. Um, and that was everything from all the club kits to all the uh, national teams as well. Um Sorry, what? So, how would that work then? You say design. Can you give us some details of what that actually would entail? Because it, I take it would be as as hands on 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 as many areas as it, as it was when you were designing life jackets. But what would what would be your responsibilities now when you from from when you started and then how did that progress? So when I first when I was first there, um, yeah, there was a huge. Um, I wouldn't say that there was uh, lots and lots of research because you, you had to cover so many clubs and, and federations that it was impossible to go into huge amounts of depth. depth. Mm. So, you know, a lot of the focus would obviously be on the big teams. Um, you generally take um, two or three per season um, and you'd, you'd sort of really focus on those because they were the biggest assets. And it would be the usual suspects, as you can imagine, like Barcelona and at the time Juve, mm. uh, Inter, um, and you know there would be uh, a, a fair amount of research done on those on those clubs or federations to establish a story or a theme for the season. Um, and but you'd also get help from from the guys in country as well, and that would essentially be the kickoff process. Um, and I have to say, you know, I. Um, at this, you know, when I first started there, um, there was nowhere near the same emphasis as there is now. Um, and I, I mean, personally, I was quite surprised at how little went into the process at the time, hmm. because you really are dealing with a multitude of different, um, different people, and you have to become a bit of a politician in a way, um, because you're having to please, you know, your manager. Um, the brand and the club, not to mention you know untold amount of others, including well, more importantly, most importantly, are the fans. So, you know, for something that that is quite, you know, it, it is so important 
there wasn't so much focus on actually, you know, that justification of design. Right. Um, for example, the first kit I ever, one of the first kits I ever did was for Barcelona, which was in 2000 and I think it was 2009 it was launched. Um, okay. Yep. I remember that one. Yeah. Uh, Ibrahimovic. So yeah. Yeah. That's probably most, most, most famous for, I suppose. Yeah. Um, that kit um, was generally, it, the general background behind that was that we had a um, our kind of story for the season across everything was was menswear. Um, Nike wanted this to come across as a refined, mm. um, you know, um, sharp, uh, you know, brand that was taking a lot of well, some influence from tailoring. Yeah. So we'd take that as the overall brand story for the season, and then we'd mix that with what the country, you know, the guys in country in Spain felt was a good story for the season and mm. that particular story for that season was a 2005 um you know european cup winner cup win kit yeah. so you know the narrower stripes which ronaldinho wore um and that was it you know there was a few details that were added you know um a little yellow pinstripe on the collar um and stuff like that that was that was essentially it um yeah i, I remember that I remember that kit, and I remember liking it. I, I remember. I'll probably agree with what you said that it was a nice shirt, and it was a nice shirt and kit. And um, there wasn't the depth that you look at it and say that's necessarily going to be iconic f to be tied to Barcelona. It was a good kit, and but it was almost as if it was a great shirt done in Barcelona's colours. Do you understand what I mean by that? Does that? Yeah, I agree. So, so that would be the the dearth of research involved. Do you think that? Yeah, because I mean, the team was that small. I mean, you know, don't forget Nike had only been kind of, um, yeah, kind of with within football. What are we talking? I mean, I, I suppose they'd only really driven into it for about five to ten years before that. Mm. Um, you know, and. Uh, I think that at the time they were still finding their feet a little bit, um, and then, like I say, there wasn't such emphasis on on the actual stories of the clubs. Yeah. And to be honest, like you know, when you looked at Adidas at the time, they were st they were also doing the same thing. And mm. to be honest, I still think they did this a similar thing now. There's the odd one that kind of pops up, but there is, it generally is um, a kind of cookie cutter template that's put across most kits. Yeah. Um and it was only really I would say 2 to 3 years after that that we actually hit upon the fact that you know fans really do start to buy into stories more when you really put that depth of research in. Yeah. So Nike from what I know um there was a little bit of involvement in NASL in Canada and the USA. And then Sunderland had Nike kits in the in the late eighties, I think. But that was that was more. It was probably a license thing or something. It, it wasn't. You wouldn't really call it them really getting involved in the football kit market. And then Arsenal were the big thing in the in the nineties. But that was massively. We've we've come in and we're making a statement, and we're not going to research things at all because they went against tradition a long way. Was from what you you learned when you came in, were there 
sort of red flag events like you can't do this 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 because the traditions are are such or would it be go out and and produce a good kit and would it be an afterthought would you then speak to the club and they would reject it or would you have a starting point of these are the rules that are set out by the club that you can't can't go too far away from um i wouldn't say that there was a set of rules I think we were guided by the people who were in country and they would, would tell us what we what we shouldn't and shouldn't do. Um, you know, they're, they're, I suppose, the the aficionados. They're, um, they're the guys that are closest to the ground. So, I mean, you know, we're not stupid. We know that we can't do a white away kit for Barcelona, for example. Hmm. Um, and we know that we're not going to put any white on their shirt whatsoever. You know, um, yeah. There, <clears throat> there's there's been one exception, but we wouldn't put Arsenal in a white away kit, for example. Um, but at the same time, you're still looking for that one moment of disruption, that one that one kit that's going to really shake things up and make people kind of take a second look at things. You know? Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned white away kits. I've just looked at the um, the the copper range for Barcelona. Um, they do the official retro range for them now. And uh, I was looking through it to see if they, if I could find the white away kit that they wore in the seventies, but they're not selling it. So I'm going to be emailing them later because that's the one I want. Um, <laughs> the what you say about you say it's it's sort of common sense. You're not obviously you're not going to be stupid to to get in there in the first place. But there may be people who find themselves in a football design role where. They've previously been other in other sports. Their background means they're they're more inclined towards other sports. So, I suppose there's the potential of getting tripped up by something like that if you if you don't have things set in place. What do you what do you mean regarding people being in country? What does that phrase mean? So, they generally we generally have um, representatives in the country. So, there'll be people who work for Nike Spain, Nike France, Nike Germany, and those guys will be the people that actually liaise with the club. So as a designer, you don't actually go out to present those designs to the club yourself. Um, and they will always also be a sounding board or a safety net between you and the club. So they will make sure that you don't go and present. Because, you know, yes, I know about Barcelona and I know not to do a, a white away kit for them. But I don't necessarily know as, as much about Fenerbahce, for example. Uh, sorry, mm. Fenerbahce. Um, Ferenc Varish, for example. Yeah. Um, and so they'll give you... The, the necessary um, guidance in what you need to be able to produce a kit for them. Um, and that's obviously invaluable to you as a designer because you don't necessarily know the culture. Um, I use Ferenc Avarish for, as an example because they were a Nike-sponsored team at the time. And to be quite honest, I don't know a great deal about, you know, um, you know the, well, I don't know in depth Hungarian football. Mm. So it's really important for them to tell you their, you know, give you their knowledge and help you to design a kit that's, that's best for that club, mm. and even tap into stories, uh, anniversaries, those kind of things. Okay, so so you will will have a, a theme to the kits, and that's probably something that you mentioned has developed since uh, since you started there and during your time there, and it now maybe gone beyond that. Um, in terms of the specifics, would you say? that what you were doing as a, as a designer was very graphics based rather than the 
the performance element or would, would that be more the developer how where would the balance be for that so from I, I mentioned to begin with um, that at the start of you know when I first joined Nike there was three of us yeah we would have you know a more senior designer who would oversee everything um, and then we would have myself who was an apparel designer and then we'd also have uh, another guy um, who would do the the graphics so I would concentrate on you know how a garment would look know what sort of collar we'd use the fabrics you'd use how we would finish it and construct the garment um, and then the the graphic designer would be the person who actually you know puts the print onto it or does the crest and, and you know any little kind of inscription details labels those kind of things okay so but you you were the apparel designer so you you had a a, a a bigger hold of the the finished product i suppose you so is that in stages then does it start with the graphic design does it move across or how does it work so you work together to construct a story okay. um and you know i can't emphasize how much how important it is to have a story you know we had a story for every single club that we did even you know in the early days um you know everyone from barcelona to to Austria Veen used to have a would have a story, and once you constructed that story, um, you'd both kind of work together. Well, I think I suppose in the, again in the early days, um, you'd kind of move apart a little bit, and I would concentrate more on um, how we thought a a collar should look, or and then the graphic designer would would think about any prints or stripes or whatever that may have to go onto the onto the garment as well so and then you kind of come back together and discuss ideas um and go from there but yeah um it's it is much a very much a collaborative effort mm. because you know just because you're a graphic designer doesn't mean to say that you wouldn't have a great idea for a collar and vice versa you know okay all right that's good um so you, you mentioned earlier that the, the it's not a conflict it's it's two things being intertwined which is performance versus style and what what things will look like you you mentioned the story and you obviously you know things about certain clubs and you you have people who could tell you and inform inform the design of of kits but will there be compromise but will there be compromise on the saleability side in order to ensure performance or what would be the starting point there do you think um, I think that's a hard question to answer. I mean, you know, we used to concentrate on, you know, as I say, we'd, we'd start with a story. The story was the most important thing. Um, generally, the performance side of things would come from, you know, to another team. Um, we'd actually have an innovation team that would work in-house to um, look at how we could improve the kit's you know the, the chassis of a kit every season um, they would look at you know everything from you know how the fabric performs to you know obviously the laser cut holes that you see mm. on, on um, kits those kind of things what what generally is our, our our focus in terms of innovation for the season and that's really important for Nike as a brand um, and then obviously you know as an apparel designer it was my it was my job to kind of come in with with the fluff a little bit and uh um, yeah. So, you kind of already have a rough idea of where they wanted to drive the innovation first. So that was almost the, the first 
layer. Um, and then on top of that, you would layer the story of what we feel best connects with the fans. And the real focus, as is always been with Nike, is about connecting with the fans. I think, you know, sometimes they get a bit of a rough deal um, from some uh, supporters in, in, in that people think that they just come up with um, any old rubbish just to kind of sell kits sometimes. Mm. And I promise you, the amount of work and... Um, research and um, you know uh, f- well focus really that goes into these into developing a kit is unbelievable okay so yes it's, it's, it's to, to answer your question it's it's a lot of it's a bit of both really uh, as I say performance is, is obviously really important to Nike because that's what they stand for as a brand but more importantly it's about making sure that they connect with fans so it's not about saleability or, or anything like that. It's about making sure that you've got something that actually um, a fan understands um, and yeah. really feels like they've actually you've actually got their club. You know, you understand what, what their club represents. Yeah, I, I'm. I might be thinking in. There's. A, I've got a couple of questions regarding this, but the, I might be thinking a little bit too much from a marketing point of view. And it's interesting to know that that story is. It comes from you rather than something that's been been fed to you from a marketing team. Would that be right? So it's not you're not told by market marketing specialists. This is what we're going to do this season. Now build a shirt around that. It comes from you directly, does it? Well, it wasn't. The f- no, it did come from the marketing team in the first place. Right. When I first got there, and, and you know, again, as I say, we were a small team. That's how it started. You know, a marketing team would just feed us what they felt was was right for the season. It was still connecting with the fans, and it was still yeah. important, but it wasn't anywhere near the emphasis that grew during the time that I was there. Because I think, you know, I, I should say at this point that it's really important to, to note that I went from a small team, you know, where there was just three of us, um, and as I say, we had to kind of spread ourselves pretty thin across a multitude of different clubs and federations. Right the way through, as a, a, you know, I spent seven years there to to what grew into a team of probably I would say twenty people in the end, um, focusing on probably a, a less amount of federations and clubs, um, and you'd end you'd end up working with a, um, I would work as an apparel designer with one other graphic designer on, and we cover maybe four to five clubs a season. So I went from probably 20 more than that to for you know really drilling down into four to five clubs um and with respect to teams like Dinamo Moscow you know that was one of my clubs so mm. it wasn't you know the focus went from you know me just kind of doing a you know a, a small amount of attention on on our big clubs like Barcelona and Brazil to like I say real focus on every single Nike team okay I mean, I know that you you haven't been there recently, so the the latest range is from Nike. And That's not, not to do with me, by the way. N- yeah, not, n- nothing. <laughs> I'm put a disclaimer right down on that one. <laughs> well, but but that's the ex- an example I'm I'm thinking of, where it's so performance based that how much designing actually goes into that. That it looks to me like there's only a graphic designer that would have a job there once the the kits need to be designed. Because everything has gone into the development and construction of the kits, so that's an extreme example. But would there not be an element of that? So I, I have to be sort of careful how I tread here, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the kits that are out now um, are obviously, you know, they were designed after I left. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think those kits have come in for a lot of negative reaction from certain people um, because they all do look very similar. Um, and I don't know what, you know, what direction Nike have decided to move in since I've gone or, or whatever, but I think, I, uh, yeah... It's it's really hard for me to comment on this one because no, I, I do I, I, I do agree, to, but I think, yeah I don't want to put you, know, you into a, into a difficult position. But you you've mentioned a couple of times what sort of collar would be involved in the shirt and so on. But that's well, there's no collars for a start on the on the current lot. Well, that's to be put to one side. I'm just thinking if you are told by another department collars way down the shirt too much, there's no collars anymore. Does that that's going to have an effect on how you design a shirt? Yeah, absolutely. But there's other areas that you can focus on. As I say, I, I don't really know what um, what has gone into the new kit, so I can't really uh, comment on that. But um, when I was there, as I say, the, the focus was on about, um, you know, the, sorry, the innovation team would give you guide rails in terms of what they wanted to get across as far as new, new um, technology was concerned. And mm. you work within those boundaries. So yeah, I do. I, I do agree that the, the new kits have come in for a lot of a lot of flack. But um, you know, I mean, that that is surely what what a uh, a kit is about, right? It's making sure that you can give the athlete that last little bit of um, of help that's going to give them. It's going to get them over the line um, in in winning the game. Mm. Yeah, because we are talking about as as any sport is concerned, we are talking about fine margins that you know. You could you could talk about percentages, small, hmm. you know, three four percent that could actually yeah. win you a game. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, so I I can understand that element. I I I wonder to what, I, from a marketing point of view, to to have that as the starting point, because we we've seen a lot of say black shirts. So you you say that it, the importance is um, what the fans are, are going to be able to engage with, what they're going to what's going to excite the fans but i suppose the sales element is is based on maybe they might be loosely a fan but a, a person in england buying a barcelona shirt is not necessarily a a fan they're just someone who likes the shirt so we've seen an increase in black shirts because supposedly they look good with jeans and it's um unobtrusive i suppose in your life if you're wearing a, a black football shirt so you can wear it with other things but for the push towards sportswear does that not compromise making the product look to look as good as it possibly can for sales first i i, I know sales isn't going to be your focus you you are creating a work of art and then it, it goes elsewhere but is is that not a problem if you're focusing on on performance to that extent um yeah, I mean, there's a certain element of commerciality that comes into everything you design. Of course it is. Um, obviously, you need to design something that people are going to buy because mm. that's what pays you wages. But, you know, as I say, I think if you make that connection with the fans in the first place, they're going to buy the product. And I get what you're saying in terms of, you know, a guy who, you know, doesn't necessarily support Barcelona is going to come and buy the shirt for you just because he likes the shirt. But that's also that's also because he you know he buys into Barcelona and mm. and he likes the shirt whatever, whatever. I mean, having said that, I suppose there's there's also that element of uh, you know when people think that um, you know 
whatever you do within kit design, people are going to buy it. If they're a Barcelona fan, mm. then they're going to buy the shirt. But, you know, I mean, you'd be surprised. A Barcelona fan, I mean, you know, that's, I mean, that's a whole n- another subject as well. You know, there's different, there's a different um, culture in buying football shirts in different countries than there is to the UK. I think, um, you know, we're avid football shirt buyers. You know, it's almost like, a, uh, you know, it, it's a tradition. You buy your new shirt at the start of every season. Whereas in Spain, they don't they don't tend to buy shirts like that. They'll buy mm. a shirt every three to four seasons when their old one, you know, gets a bit tatty or whatever, and they need a new one. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you you really do need to make that connection with them. Bef- and I mean, I keep saying it, but you do have to get across that you understand the club. And you, you're trying to uh, to get a message in that shirt. Yeah, so it's the message element is interesting. I, I know what, I know what you mean regarding people because um, I see pictures of the new camp and I look through all the different shirts, and it's great for me because I look through them and I can name the seasons. Um, but I, I take the point that not everyone's buying the new shirt. Whereas, say for a club like I, I, I imagine this is your experience of it, Celtic. Everyone will get the new shirt at the beginning of the the new season so i remember seville when when celtic played um against porto and you looked at the crowd and everyone had the brand new shirt which was a shirt that the players on the pitch had never even worn before so we have that culture in this country i think yeah definitely definitely i think it's i I don't think it's quite as big as it was um i think people are starting to i mean this this whole retro thing is rising um i think uh a lot more people are seeing the value in, in a retro shirt rather than uh, than a new shirt. Mm. And and also now you only have the the year a year the a shirt only lasts for a season as well. So I suppose it's a lot of money mm. to to shell out if you're going to buy the the shirt each season as well. You having been there for the time you were there, did you notice any patterns in what you did with the kit? So if you did something particularly bold, did you? find that that did particularly well did did you change your approach and have classic then a bold shirt and and that kind of thing or are there any certain rules that you had through experience you did try to spike it Mm. because you can't do you know an amazing shirt every season and you can't have a a talked about shirt every single season um so you would try to look at you know i mean again this is something that came in um, a little while after I started, and then we start to look at a timeline of a shirt. Look at, you know, where we could pull in anniversaries, where we could look, you know, uh, mm. bring in uh, a certain story, and and so on and so forth. We'd actually plan that out. So, you know, if we could see that Barcelona were going to have an anniversary of something in, you know, uh, twenty nineteen or whatever, we'd make sure that the shirt leading up to that was you know a more of a classic mm. so that you could you could draw emphasis onto to that big um spike the following year yeah. by the same token you don't want to have some men, you know a mental shirt followed by another mental shirt uh, mm. yeah you want to have peaks and troughs to things you want to see that classic element you know as you look back through history um to to remain you know you want to make sure that you see um them you know consistently going back to their classic blue and uh, well blaugrana mm. yeah um well that's that's the the cliche is that what can you do with stripes well i think with barcelona certainly over the last 10 years or so you you we've seen 
all the different things that can be done with stripes and uh, there's positive and negative elements to that as well so the argument would be that there's a, a loss of identity if you go too far away from that but it there is the injection of history in there so the half and half shirt when they won the league uh, won the champions league in 2009 and so on obviously people were, might have problems with that but it it does nod back to the to the past as well when yeah. you were the what what other shirts were you particularly proud of in your time there i think my biggest legacy will be the uh, the french shirt and i think that was 2011 mm. so it's the first french shirt that we did for nike um where we you know did the um the sort of the, the really sharp collar uh, button up yeah. collar um we we took the blue right down to make it you know more of a dark blue um, and then we did the Marinière for the away kit. Yeah, yeah, remember them well. Um, now, you, you say in 2009 for, for Barcelona, there was a, a classic approach and it was like menswear and it was it was towards fashion a little bit. That ties in quite well with what was going on at Umbro at the time, which in effect was the same company. Was there crossover in design? Was there dialogue between the two the two design teams there? No, absolutely not, not. A lot of a lot of people ask me this actually because <laughs> I was quite annoyed at the time. I was still, I was working on that French kit mm. when England probably brought out what I would consider the the best kit they've ever had, mm-hmm. um, and I think that was for two thousand ten World Cup. Yeah, and they had the full white kit with the um, with the collar on it, um, and as I say, that was for me is still one of the most beautiful kits that's ever been done. Um, and I was I was absolutely gutted at the time yeah. because I was working on this this French kit, um, and I was yeah I'd actually done all the research I you know basically started designing, and all you know uh, I would say that that kit was probably a watershed moment within you know my approach to, to design from Nike. You know I, I think it's probably fair to say most you know the the company in general towards football kits because we put a huge amount of, of detail and research into every single component of that kit um, the collar was derived from um, a Christian Dior shirt hmm. the, uh, the colour of the kit itself was drawn was brought right down because we were looking at you know classic French sophistication um, you know we you know even the fabric that we were using I wanted to use um, a, a, a fabric that looked like polyester on the outside and behaved like polyester but on the inside it had that luxury feel of cotton Hmm. Um, we made the the short longer because we were focused again on making the silhouette look more elongated and smarter and sharper Uh, all sorts of things like that and then Umbro went and brought out that kit and it just completely stole my thunder yeah certainly the shorts I remember Nike shorts at the time were so so wide so baggy and then they got cut in around the time of that of that france kit would that be right would that be sort that's of stripped right, yep. away extra extra fabric at that point yeah yep. um yeah yeah that's the way it would look to us and i think it was the 2012 european championship kits that that seemed to be massively influenced by those those umbro england kits um the, were, were you behind those were you involved in those as well yeah the france ones for but, I, for... but it wasn't <laughs> no no okay. it absolutely wasn't <laughs> no um, no but it, but it fits it it 
it fits the development <coughs> of the France kit design as well. So you would imagine those kits would be coming off the first Nike France kits, but because of the time it was and because the, the highest profile kit of that style earlier was that Umbro kit, you can see why people would, would draw that conclusion from it. But yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can I can see why people would make the connection. Mm. Um, I mean, the thing was with that France kit, we also, you know, as a as a brand, they wanted to set a precedent as well. Um, it was such a multi million dollar contract that they wanted to really draw a, a line in the sand, and I think they did. You know, um, as much as yeah, there can be um, sort of similarities between that and the England kit. I think in terms of general kit design. Um, I, I personally think that there was a watershed moment in terms of you know approach and general look. I mean, if you look at the timeline of kits over the years, I think those those two kits will will stand the test. Well, will be seen as a uh, as a point at which you know things did change. Yeah, I, looking at the the evolution since and the graphical things are coming back. There's a lot more. Um, embellishment on football kits again but it's I, I quite like the way it's being done at the minute i look back on that kit and i go i i remember how excited it was and i remember i mean the same with the france kits as well because they were a massive big deal because of what adidas had done with their last kits so that was very um the the graphics on the france kit for the 2010 world cup were very much based around the form but in a in a in a uh, performance sense so it was about highlighting the abs and that kind of thing rather than than style or being classic or anything like that um so so that was a direct contrast to what you did um but now you look at the development since and you look back on that england kit you go that's is it too simple because we're used to what's happened over the past couple of years so i remember what it was like and and I stand by the way I felt at the time, but you can understand people now going back to the same response which we had then, which is well, that's just a polo shirt, isn't it? And it's now you can sort of understand that a little bit more. But at the time, it was like, no, this is fantastic, it's stripping away all that's terrible about football kits. So that's what it seemed like then. Mm. Yeah, I think I, you know personally, I think um, things have gone again too far in the in the embellishment direction. I'd like to see, you know, I'm I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to kits. I think it's that it's that constant struggle between, you know, purity and making something new, making something look new and fresh and unique. That you know, that is that is what it is to be a designer all the time. You know, you're constantly having these these you know um, fights with yourself about being able to get the best you possibly can out of a kit. Um, and I think, you know, for me, that England kit stands out because it is so pure. Um, and it, it was, you know, I, I think there's a Japanese um, um, philosophy of, I, I, don't, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's the idea behind it is that you have one design detail in something and you, you believe in that detail so much that you, you only need that. And you stand by it and you, you be brave and bold. Um, and you don't, you don't need all the other stuff around it. I think if you have one great story and one great element to a kit, you don't need anything else. Um, you know, one of the kits that always stands out for me was a Nike kit that um, a colleague of mine did. That was um, 
like a it, it was uh, Juve away um, 2012 maybe um, and it was pink with just a massive black star on it oh yeah yeah and the fact that it was so bold you know it was bright pink but it, and it had a, a great big black star in it I just mm. thought it was super cool mm. um, and it's having the, you know it's being brave enough to sort of say you know that's it that's that is it only needs that yeah yeah well that was a that was a a, a great share and i agree with what you say a lot of the adidas kits recently uh, and i i love adidas but they seem to have too many elements the there was a, a scotland kit that had that had tartan as well as other things going on and it, it just seems that there's a little bit of overkill going on with a lot of kits today but I'm hoping that things are improving a little bit, and they they seem to be. Um, you, you moved on from Nike. Where did you move on to? I went to Canterbury, the okay. rugby brand. So it was direct to Can to, to Canterbury. And what was your role there? Uh, I was off-field designer, so that meant that I um, I did everything um, that, uh, that that is used off pitch. So that's um, everything from what the fans wear, the fans wear to the um, to the games um to their other range of kind of leisure wear as well that's kind of stocked in jd um jjb those kind of those mm. kind of sh- stores okay so, so just as an example that i know that canterbury for their rugby shirts at the minute have a a player version and then there's a like a, an old style rugby version uh old old rugby shirt what you would describe as a rugby shirt version that they have for fans would that be something you'd be involved with or that would that still be the sportswear side the the performance side of it no i would do that i would do the old style shirts for fans yeah okay all right so how did you find that was that a, a, a culture clash based on your experience at, at nike well for as much as i've told you that you know i was desperate to get into kits i really wanted to do kits i think in the end um seven years at Nike doing that job was uh, was quite a long time and I needed something to kind of you know, I needed to, to, to have a bit of a change um, I still wanted to design sportswear but I wanted to do something a little bit different and obviously, you know I'm as well as a football fan, I mean I'm, I'm a gen, general sports fan but rugby's probably my second sport mm. and it seemed like a natural progression Okay so you weren't there for how long? How long were you at Canterbury for? I was only there for 12 months. <laughs> 12 months, okay. So yeah. was that, what was your experience there? Was it, is it something, is that shift away from the, the on-field sportswear to the more leisure-based area, was that the right move again? Because I suppose that, that has parallels with Debenhams again, doesn't it? Is it is it going back to that kind of thing? Well, quite honestly, um the, the the reason was more for personal reasons than anything else. Oh right, okay. As far as as far as actually working on the product was concerned, it was you know it was it was a really good experience. Mm. Um, the actual product itself, um, yes, was more influenced by by fashion, um, but there was also uh, a heavy sportswear uh, influence as well because you know you're talking about a, a very historical brand that's been around for over a hundred years, so the the plethora of of um, archive and history and authenticity that has to go into their product um, is is huge. Hmm. Um, and I, 
you know, as well as working on you know sort of tracksuits and hoodies and stuff like that, um, I also managed a, another area which was called 1904, um, and is a much more kind of high end product that's sort of stocked in House of Fraser and Harvey Nicks and places like that. So there's that element of um, of real traditional sport um, that's brought into in, into into leisure wear, as well as that. You know, there's, as I say, the the influence of, uh, of, you know, working on. There's also the the, the facet of, of working on sportswear, um, and general hoodies and tracksuit bottoms and stuff like that. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, do you find obviously you're aiming again at sports fans, particularly for, for a lot of the off-field rugby wear. Um, so what we're we talking British Lions here and so you worked on the British Lions stuff that's just come out is that right I did um yeah the first range that came out for them so I did the it was like a limited edition um uh shirt that was I, I think they did 1957 of them which was the the year that Canterbury actually first made the shirt for the Lions uh-huh. um and that was to launch the you know to celebrate the um, uh, them taking over as as uh, as the main sponsor yeah um, and that was a shirt that as I say was it, it was a shirt that was first um, made for the lines by Canterbury in uh, inadvertently um, basically what happened was that the the lines went over to New Zealand to do mm. a tour um, and ended up. The, the shirts all got ripped and destroyed in one particular game. Uh-huh. So a local company um, supplied those shirts, which was Canterbury. It was Canterbury. So we re, uh, redid that shirt to celebrate that, that, that famous uh, um, collaboration. Now, you talk about the story involved in, in producing a, a, a football kit for, for the fans, for the club. Um, and now Canterbury have England and they have the Lions now as well. Do you find that there are extra pressures in rugby compared with football? Are rugby fans more discerning or is the, the public more discerning in that element? Well, that's hard to say because obviously, you know, I worked on kits at Nike mm. and an off-field product at, at Canterbury. But in terms of an overall customer, I think they're quite similar. I think, okay. um, you know, they, both fans do appreciate, you know, the um the the effort when when they see a story actually come to fruition in a shirt if they can understand this you know that, that there is a story and there is part of the the club's heritage within that shirt um you know they do uh they do appreciate it and i know you know at canterbury having worked with the guys who who uh who do the on field uh, product there is a huge amount of um, research and, uh, and, and and storytelling that goes into their kits as well. Okay. Um, now, uh, we've been talking for a long time, so I'm just interested in what's going on with you now. What, what are you involved in now? Is it your freelance sportswear designer? Is that right? I am. Um, I also, you know, I'm, I work on a lot of uh, workwear product. Okay. Um, for uh, for certain brands. Um, I also I've also worked for uh, Franklin and Marshall. Okay. Um, yeah, they're a, a sort of heritage uh, sportswear brand. Um, who else? Uh, a brand called Rampant Sporting, who um, are also a very English heritage brand. Uh, yeah, all, all sorts. Yeah. So, um, do you see the 
the industry is going in that direction. I, I say this because I had I spoke to Jason Lee on this podcast, and he was at Adidas for a long time, and uh, Harmore as well, and he's now a, a freelance designer. Is is that a, a natural progression for a designer, or is that indicative of the industry that more freelance people will be involved now? I don't know. Um, part of me does think that. Um, more companies, but you know, because of the times that we live in, mm. um, you know, people want to be sort of looser in in uh, in their approach, you know, in how they work, mm. um, when they work. Um, but I also think companies are more flexible in how they work as well. Um, you know, they're fine. You know, I, I think um, companies are finding that it's easier to bring designers in for a small period of time to see if something works. Um, and if it does, you know, they'll, they'll keep producing it. Mm. Um, but if it, if it doesn't, it's, <laughs> I know this sounds pretty cynical, but it's easier to get, to get rid of people if something's not yep. working. Yeah. Oh, certainly I, I, I speak as a self-employed person who, who knows that all too well. Um, the, do, do you, how do you think this is going to impact on design? Do you, do you see just positives in that or do you think that there's the potential for the lineage of say a football kit from five years ago and that progression to today will it seem more disjointed if different people are working on it each season I don't think so so long as you've got um, a consistency there in terms of who's managing the operation and you know you generally tend to get that with with brands like Nike um, you know they, they've had a consistency in their approach to design over the years. I don't, you know, I, I would say there's probably a lot of different people who've worked on, on the, you know, on the product that they've produced over, over the last twenty years, and you generally see a consistency there. And I think you know to have different people working on different products, it really does bring a fresh approach to things. It's really important to have new ideas and, and a new new focus. Okay. And quite honestly, that's probably you know one of the big factors in why I why I left uh, Nike in the end because as much as I still have a burning desire to uh, you know I really still I'm a, I'm a football kit anorak I, lo- mm-hmm. I still love football kits and I get really excited you know when uh, you know when the summer comes because that's one of the things I look forward to most but I knew that you know I had to kind of move on myself as a designer to keep to keep that that fire burning and keep um keep keep myself fresh mm. Do do you see potential for you to be working on football kits again in the future? I hope so. I'd like to do it more from a freelance perspective now, and you know maybe have, um, you know maybe do one or two in the future. Perhaps mm. I'd like to work on a grassroots brand. Yeah. Um, you know somebody who's uh, just starting out, perhaps, um, and uh, you know looking to kind of bring fresh and new ideas into uh, into into kits i think a lot of you know smaller brands tend to follow nike and adi um and kind of do versions of what they're doing i'd like to see someone start up something which you know um you know has a slightly new approach to it and actually does have a connection to grassroots football rather than just another template yeah. But I like I like being freelance and I like being able to work across a, a multitude of different uh, different things and um, so you know not maybe not doing football kits at this point in time is uh, is top of my agenda but I am 
hoping to write something very soon. I'll, I'll, I won't go into too much detail on that because none of the uh, none of the contracts have been signed yet. But okay. um, hopefully, uh, you should see some. Uh, you should see a book or two from me in the future. Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, well, good luck with with that and and all of the designing. Uh, is there any way we could get hold of you on Twitter? Anything like that? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I think it's just Sean Pankhurst on on okay. Twitter. Ideal. So, yeah. uh, if there's anything anything th- further that people want to know, then they can give you a shout. Um, well, thanks very much for that, Sean. That's been fantastic. Uh, as I say, I wish you luck for the future. Um, thank you for being so candid. It's been a, a pleasure having you on, and hopefully, I'll speak to you soon. Perfect. Yeah. So, thank you to Sean, and I'm J29ers on Twitter. If anyone wants to get hold of me, make sure to visit the site and Design Football on Twitter and DesignFootball.com on Facebook. So, get in touch with us if there's anything you'd like to know. We'll be back soon with another podcast. Uh, and a new guest. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye.